Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local evening news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In case you haven't seen any media for the last three months, you may not know that Wisconsin has been swamped by an avalanche of campaign advertising. Here are some numbers first reported by the State Journal and the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. $104 million has been spent in the Senate race as of one week ago, making this the fourth most expensive race in the nation. Notably, one-third of money spent by the Johnson campaign, $17 million, was contributed by a single individual, billionaire Diane Hendricks of Beloit. As of last week, the governor contest has been somewhat less expensive, coming in at over $61 million. In that race, challenger Tim Mickles has financed nearly his entire race with $20 million in the general election and $12 million in the primary. His brothers, who are also executives of his construction company, contributed $1.5 million to the campaign. And how did Wisconsin's last Republican governor, Scott Walker, spend his Halloween? By dressing up as Buzz Lightyear, according to a tweet from Monday. Meanwhile, this election's GOP candidate for governor, Tim Michaels, was making headlines for his speech on Halloween, in which he said, quote, Republicans will never lose another election if I am elected governor. That's according to the Huffington Post. Michaels has said that he supports abolishing the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission, which currently administers elections and has become a target of the Wisconsin GOP, even though the agency was created by Republicans. Michaels has proposed replacing it with an agency overseen by the partisan legislature, as well as imposing new restrictions on absentee and early voting. Governor Evers responded to Michael's speech with a quotable quote of his own, quote, Tim Michaels is a danger to our democracy, unquote. The last poll before Election Day indicates a toss-up in both of the major statewide races. The Marquette Law School poll of registered voters released today found Johnson ahead by 2% over Barnes and Evers and Michaels tied. The margin of error for this poll is 5%. The issues of greatest concern to voters were led by inflation, followed by education, crime, and accurate vote counting. Although the recent Supreme Court decision was viewed unfavorably by a wide margin of voters, abortion was fairly low on the list of major concerns. On education, 63% of voters supported increased funding for public schools and only 29% supported increased support of private schools. We'll have more on the Marquette Law School poll later in this broadcast. The Madison Common Council has once again approved a referendum question that would extend the terms of city alders. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The proposal, authored by Alder Grant Foster, would increase the term of a council member from two to three years. While the final language is being hashed out, the council approved the general question to be on the ballot next spring. The referendum was prompted by an internal task force on the size and shape of Madison's legislative body, which made recommendations for change. One year ago, Madison voters rejected a similar proposal that would have increased the term of members from two to four years on the council. The vote was about 60% against and 40% in favor of the change. 
In the same election, voters overwhelmingly approved a measure for term limits for council members to 12 years. No action has been taken on that front. And just so there's no confusion, this question is slated to appear on the ballot next spring during the nonpartisan election in April. The question will not be on the ballot this next week. A city department has recommended nearly $9 million in city assistance for three housing projects that will create over 400 combined apartments, also reports the Wisconsin (laughs) State Journal. As a result of the city's assistance, these projects will be well-positioned to qualify for federal and state assistance, including low-income tax credits. The largest project will provide 161 apartments at the former site of the Gardner Bakery on East Wash and Fair Oaks Avenue. A $40 million project, four-story project on Odana Road will provide 125 units, with a majority for lower-income residents. (coughs) Currently, the site is a small strip mall. The third project is downtown at 358 East Washington, currently St. John's Lutheran Church. On that site, there will be a 10-story building that will continue to house the church and create 130 housing units, with 108 for lower-income renters. The Madison School Board approved their operating budget at a meeting on Monday, increasing spending by 12% over last year and 25% over a two-year period. Because of grants from the state and federal government over the last year of the pandemic, the increases in spending will not result in increases in taxes, at least for now. In fact, the average tax burden on homeowners will decrease by about $62, reports the Capital Times. The budget includes a 3% raise for all district staff and an additional $5 raise for teaching assistants and food service workers. It also includes funding across a wide range of projects, including mental health support, new technology, an upgraded HVAC system, and expansion of the driver's education program. A man who dressed up as Hitler and was seen around State Street on Halloween night has been fired from his job after previously being suspended. In a statement, the Madison Children's Museum wrote that his employment would, quote, create an environment at odds with our values and unwelcoming to visitors and staff. In a previous statement, the Children's Museum alleged that the man has cognitive disabilities due to a traumatic brain injury and that the man believed the costume was making fun of Hitler. Still, pictures and video of the man on Monday evening quickly spread online. National outlets such as the Jerusalem Post decried the costume, as did UW-Madison's Jewish Community Center, UW-Hillel. Those are the headlines for this evening, and now on to the rest of the day's top stories. A group of local leaders and organizations gathered at the Capitol today to recognize the start of Homelessness Awareness Month. Speakers discussed the state of homelessness in Wisconsin and how community members can help. Our producer this evening, Talia Van Sistine, has the story. Ari Macon has experienced homelessness multiple times throughout his life. His most recent experience was in Madison when he was 17 years old. He says he spent the entire summer of that year living on someone's porch while he searched for another place to live. You feel sometimes alone and scared and stressed out because you don't know what's happening next. Everything is just like in the air. Macon spoke at today's Homelessness Awareness Month event as a member of the Dane County Youth Action Board, a group committed to ending youth homelessness. 
State Senator Melissa Agard and Madison Deputy Mayor Linda Vacunta were among other speakers at the event. They highlighted what they say is a homeless crisis in Dane County and Wisconsin overall. And speakers also welcomed organizations to collaborate on possible solutions. Last year, Governor Tony Evers declared November 13th through the 21st as Homelessness Awareness Week, which has now transformed into a month-long observance. Vanessa McDowell is the CEO of YWCA Madison. As an attendee of today's event, she says she was excited to connect with other organizations who focus on homelessness issues. Though she says she has doubts about what work will actually be done to help people experiencing homelessness. It's more like I'm waiting and seeing, right? So kind of, you know, what's going to happen after we have left here, what's going to happen? So what's the work to be done? McDowell says she and members of the YWCA's housing team attended today's event to share their ideas and thoughts on how housing issues can be addressed. McDowell says she wanted to make sure intersectionality and the idea that everyone is impacted by issues differently was a part of today's discussion. Yes, we have um, housing crisis in Madison, but how it is disproportionately impacting people of color as well. And I think that's an element that I want to bring in the, in the storyline, too. According to a report this year from the Homeless Services Consortium of Dane County, black folks account for 40 percent of all people identified as experiencing homelessness. Yet, black people account for 5.5 percent of Dane County's total population as of the start of this year. 20-year-old Mayana Holmes also attended today's event as someone who has been homeless since she was 16 years old and as a member of Project 1649, a nonprofit organization that serves homeless youth in Rock County. Holmes says she is particularly hopeful about Wisconsin's efforts to help young people who are experiencing homelessness. I'm really excited that the word is getting out about youth homelessness and all the struggles that we've been going through and that the community is realizing how big of a struggle that it is. And I'm very excited that it's finally getting resolved and that we're not being invisible anymore. Macon from the Youth Action Board says after today's event, he hopes people can unite to help people experiencing homelessness across the city of Madison. As a community working together to eliminate gaps or barriers for people to be successful. For Wart News, I'm Talia Van Sistine. Just coming up on 617 now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Forty-three percent of registered voters say they will vote for Governor Tony Evers, while 44 percent say they will vote for Republican candidate Tim Michaels. This is from the latest Marquette Law School poll and once again proves Wisconsin's governor race will be a close one. The poll released today is also the last one to be released before Election Day next week, Tuesday. WORT producer Talia Van Sistine spoke with political journalist J.R. Ross about the results of this poll earlier this afternoon. 
Today, Marquette Law School released the results from its final poll before Election Day next Tuesday. The poll shows, well, that it's a toss-up in the races for governor and U.S. Senate. Joining me now to break down the numbers is journalist J.R. Ross, editor at WIS Politics. J.R., thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. So... In one sense, today, we found out something that political watchers already know, that the race between Governor Evers and Tim Michaels and Senator Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes will be tight. A week before the election, what does the latest poll predict? So looking at the Senate race, it's a tight race, a little tighter than it was last time. Now, the thing I always caution about polls is they're a snapshot in time. Uh, there's a margin for error. So even though this poll shows that it's uh, 50% for Ron Johnson, 48% for Mandela Barnes, that's within the margin of error. So this race could go either way. It also could be a wider gap between the two of them. And as Charles Franklin, director, said today, polls don't vote, right? People do. So you have to keep that in mind. There's just numbers. The trend, though, has been kind of bouncing around a little bit where this was a six-point race uh, earlier this month. So the question becomes, does this mean there's a tightening or was that poll from early October an outlier? Uh, other polls that we've seen, there's a new one out from Emerson today, also have this race fairly close. It's worth noting that Ron Johnson has hit 50% in several recent polls. If you're an incumbent, that's a great place to be. Now, again, there's a margin of error, so keep that in mind. But things can be a little bit of, a, little bit of an edge toward Johnson as we get close to Election Day. Okay, and... I guess, can you expand a bit more on, on the difference from this poll to previous polls, you know, considering the one released uh, in October and, and even before that? It's just that, you know, we're seeing little shifts, and they're very small. And again, with the margin of error, what happened in um, early, mid-October, it may have been a one-off, you know, like uh, uh, maybe there was a, uh, something that skewed those results. I'm just trying to stress that these things can fluctuate sometimes. It's better to watch the trend. The trends are that Ron Johnson's favorable, unfavorable ratings have gotten a little bit better. Um, he was upside down by a good margin with voters early in the year. He's gotten to not quite even, but not as bad as it was before. Mandela Barnes is a little bit upside down with voters, but it's not horrible. But things have been kind of trending a little bit, I, guess I stress, a little bit in Johnson's favor in the Marquette polls. Other polls have had this race about the same spot. You know, they're all kind of the same neighborhood, and there's nothing out there that I'm seeing that says, oh, this is going to be a blowout on Tuesday um, unless the polls are off, which, you know, they always could be. And let's now talk about the methodology for this poll. So this poll surveyed registered voters, so that is people who have voted before. It doesn't take into account unregistered voters or people who registered to vote on Election Day. It also sampled folks in the last week of October after this uh, election's debates, which were few and far between. Mm -hmm. Do you think the debates or any other news swayed voters? The debates, you know, from what I could tell, the feedback I got from talking to various insiders about the debates was they really, there was no moment where someone would go viral end up in a TV ad. I mean, really, with debates anymore, you don't win a race with a debate, but you can lose it. If you have that moment where you make such a gaffe, it ends up being in a t TV commercial, that's really where people get hurt. I mean, let's be honest, there aren't that many people who watch debates anymore. I mean, 
a Friday night in October, lots of people have things to do besides watch debates. I don't. You know, I, I pay attention to these things, but most folks aren't watching these. So I think the impression that debates really swayed things significantly from where they were before. Now, going into these debates, you know, Mandela Barnes had seemed to kind of been shying away from meeting Ron Johnson for more than one or two debates. In talking to insiders, they thought Mandela did fairly well, that it actually would have been good for him if he had done more than just the two debates. But, you know, that's all hindsight, uh, and you know, nothing really changed at this point. And now I'm hoping we can talk about what this poll says about President Biden's approval rating. Has there been any trend or, or difference there? No, he's still going to be a drag on Democrats. Um, now, go back and look in 2018. It was a good year for Democrats, in part because of midterm election. Trump was in the White House, and he wasn't well-liked. Trump, though, in the last Marquette poll ahead of the 2018 election, hit a job of rating was 47 approved how he's doing and 50% disapproved. It wasn't that bad. Whereas with Biden, he is still significantly upside down. Uh, it looks like he's going to be a drag on Democrats. The question is how badly he's going to drag them. It was 4154 his approval versus disapproval this month. Uh, go back to the uh, last poll, it was 42.55. So again, uh, not great numbers for Joe Biden. And the question is, how much is that going to impact these races? Because politics have become nationalized. And the party in power in the White House traditionally struggles in midterm elections. That's very true in Wisconsin. Um, is it going to be a huge drag or will other factors, the Supreme Court ruling on abortion, for example, will that somewhat soften the dynamic we often see in midterm elections. And people in politics like to talk about an October surprise. Do you think we'll escape that this year? Uh, it's getting late for one. I mean, there's still six days left, so don't rule anything out. But it's getting awfully late for something to change people's minds. And also, you know, I've been asked this question to insiders for you know last couple of days. What anymore is going to disqualify somebody? You know, if you think about it, we have kind of quote-unquote tribes in politics. You know, if you're a Democrat or Republican, look at the Georgia Senate race. Remember, there have been revelations about Herschel Walker allegedly paying two women to have abortions, and that has not really shaken his support among Republicans, who obviously the party, generally speaking, opposes abortion, right? So if that's not going to change things, what disqualifies you anyway? What is, you know, something that's really going to shake voters' confidence in you if you were part of the right, the quote, right tribe, right? And that's why I really don't know what, what you'd see that could be really so horrific in the last six days that would change the trajectory of these races dramatically. And previous polls from Marquette Law School and other national organizations have indicated that inflation, crime, abortion policy, among other issues, are important to, to voters. Has this poll indicated similar things? Yep. Uh, inflation still on the top issues. What I've been talking to people about for weeks and trying to figure out is with the abortion issue, it is not the one that has the most, you know, people very concerned about that. The question is, does it move the right people? And what I'm talking about is we have seen a trend away from the Republican Party among college-educated suburban voters, particularly women. Uh, they were turned off by Donald Trump for a number of reasons. Republicans have been very hopeful that in 2022 they could bring them back into the fold because of issues like crime, inflation, uh, concerns about their schools, those kinds of things. Um, the question has been, is that working or is the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion 
kind of helping to keep those female voters in the Democratic camp. There's a reason why Tony Evers is running a lot of ads about Tim Michaels and abortion. There's a reason why both Evers and the Democratic Governor Association have been running ads about lawsuits over sexual harassment at the Michaels Corporation. They are targeting those very voters I'm talking about, college-educated suburban female voters who they think are a big key to this race this fall. And has the prioritization of these issues shifted at all from poll to poll? Does it, I know inflation has kind of remained a top issue, but have any of the other issues shifted in importance in terms of what matters to voters? Yeah, it it depends on which poll you look at and how you want to measure it. But yeah, I mean, abortion has moved up and down over the course of the year. It's not as high as it was right now as it was uh, a couple months ago, depending on which poll you look at. So yeah, there's some movement. The one consistent thing has been inflation. That has been definitely a consistent issue for voters all year. Great. And is there anything else that you think, you know, in terms of top takeaways from this poll that that voters and general members of the public alike should take away from this? Remember what Charles Franklin says, polls don't vote. So, yes, these things are great for people like me who cover politics to see the trends, but they don't predict what's going to happen necessarily. They're telling you a snapshot in time and we can see things move in the final days. So as Franklin says, polls don't vote, people do. Go out and vote and have your voice be heard. Great. So I've been speaking with journalist J.R. Ross, editor at WIS Politics, about the results of the new Marquette Lock School poll released today. J.R., thank you again for joining us. Anytime. This week on Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull heads to Oregon. Although it's one of Dane County's newer properties, Anderson County Park is quickly realizing its potential, expanding into recreation and small-scale farming. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. In 2009 and 2013, the county bought parcels of land which back up to the very southern edge of the village of Oregon, They named it Anderson County Park after the family that owned the land. Specifically, it's named after the late Lyman Anderson, who served on the Dane County Board of Supervisors, and is also the namesake of the building the Dane County Parks Department is run out of. For most of its first decade, Anderson Park didn't look like much. It was a series of flat fields and one small patch of woods, with a few simple trails cut through it. This was nice for the people whose neighborhood bordered the woods, But that was about it. Anderson didn't have enough going on to draw in people from the rest of Oregon, much less the rest of the county. But year over year, people from the community chipped away at improvements, and their work is starting to visibly pay off. In 2021, Anderson opened a dog park in its southernmost section of land. This is accessible to anyone driving by on County A, but also anyone who walks in off the brand new paved path, which connects the dog park to the existing forest and the village beyond. There's a lot going on at the park these days, so I think it might be helpful to hear from an inside perspective. Roe Parker is the director of the Friends of Anderson Park, which has been responsible for many of the changes the park has undergone. Here's what he thinks makes the park special. 
Anderson Park's a great park for diversity that we have forest. Uh, we have some major prairies. These are undiscovered prairies to most people in Dane County. We also have an interesting agricultural mission. We're one of three parks out of 26 in the Dane County Park Coalition that has an agricultural mission. So we're starting to work on that. And we're interested in food systems and helping people get access to fresh produce and healthy diets. Most of our development since 2018 has been on the east side of uh, Union Road, just south of uh, the village of Oregon. In fact, the northern boundary of the park is contiguous with the village of Oregon. So we have a 15-acre forest there, the Arthur Schultz Memorial Forest. We have five acres of prairie right there. We put in an additional four acres this winter so that we could create habitat for ground nesting birds. And then we also worked with the county on a three-year project to set up a dog park east of Union Road. That's 35 acres, and that's all prairie. And what we've done is work with the county to convert this We've converted close to 40 acres to uh, prairies. Uh, One of our prairies is rated one of the highest ones in Dane County for beauty as well as for uh, the lack of invasive species. But the park isn't focused only, or even primarily, on restoring native vegetation. Its roots as a farm are preserved, but aimed in a different direction. At the park, we have the Anderson Farm Center. So this is consisting of three parts. The first part is our food pantry garden. So we have a quarter acre food pantry garden that through volunteers, we raise fresh vegetables for three pantries, Oregon, Belleville, and Verona. And we're also starting a relationship with Little John's Kitchen. The second component is related to 22 other gardens that we have. We call these community gardens, but it's a little bit of a misnomer. These community gardens are plots of land that are quarter acre in size. They're 100 feet by 100 feet. So we screen people. Uh, We need serious gardeners to take care of this large of a garden plot. So we have 22 of those and we support about 15 uh, Hmong families that have previously had problems with access to large areas of land to uh, grow vegetables for the family. The third part is something that we are sort of transitioning into, which is trying to interest market garden farmers to come out to the park and lease between two to five acres of land. People would be able to lease this for extended periods, say like five years, Uh, They could grow whatever they would like, make a profit off of it so they could take these products to the different institutions or farmers markets, make a profit, and it would be theirs to keep. Uh, We have an interest to um, also do some education in wellness and with agriculture in general, helping young people get interested in the whole field of agriculture as a career. We have a situation where Dane County has, they purchased the land from the Anderson family who were locally well-known farmers. They purchased the land and a lot of this was agricultural land. The county actually continues to lease the land out to farmers. So some of the land is being farmed by private farmers and the county is able to take that land out of the lease uh, with six months notice to the farmers. This is already a lot to have accomplished within the past few years. But it's clear that the Friends of the Park intend to keep pushing. A big part of their website is dedicated to their dreams for the future, summarized under the banner of the so-called New Horizons Project. Thank you for asking about the New Horizons Project. This is 
something that we're trying to convey to the community. They see the things that we've already done, but we want to continue to keep them interested and sort of dream about new things that we can do for the park, for the community, for some of the goals that I referred to. One good example is that of a new community orchard. We've just last year put in 10 apple trees, 10 peach trees. This year, within the last three weeks, we put in plum trees. So we have 30 fruit trees that it's going to take probably two or three years for them to produce the fruit that we would like them to produce. And this is something that's going to be available to the community. Also, the New Horizons project refers to the Anderson Farm Center in terms of building some infrastructure out there to more uh, substantially support the pantry garden, the mung gardeners, as well as have uh, more facilities available for market growers. We had over 3,400 hours of volunteer time this last year. We still have a lot of energy and we've got some great goals. And we wanted to be able to organize a message that there's still things that we can accomplish and we want to involve as many people as possible. That all sounds wonderful, but I'm a child at heart, so I couldn't help but fixate on a single aspect of the New Horizons pitch. On the Park Friends website, there's a picture of a girl wearing a helmet, suspended by the waist from a rope. I immediately concluded that, beyond all the altruistic agricultural stuff, someone must be working on plans to bring ziplining to the park. Now that's the kind of thing I can get behind. That's not a zipline. That's part of our educational activities. We do educational programs for K-12 students in the Oregon area. The one you're referring to was a picture from our Arbor Day event. We work with Arbor Systems, one of our business members, and we sponsor a four-hour educational event at the park. Arbor Systems provides instructors for five stations that explain trees, how they're grown, how we can maintain them. And one of the five stations is how to climb a tree with ropes and harnesses. So the picture you're seeing on the website is one of the sixth graders from the Rome Corners Middle School uh, actually learning how to climb a tree with a harness and ropes. Kids literally learn how to climb about 30 feet in the air. So it's not a zip line. It's really a, a harness rig that arborists use. Zip line or not, I gotta admit, that's still pretty cool. I guess I have extreme sports on the brain because I've been imagining uses for the quarry that, at the moment, splits the recreational side of the park in half. There's a quarry adjacent to the park. It's currently being leased out by the Anderson family to the Payne and Dolan organization. Their lease gives them the ability to use that in a lease format until it's not feasible for a business to quarry the stone in there. So it's hard to predict. But once the quarry has reached end of the life cycle, the county has an interest to purchase it because it would help connect Anderson Farm County Park with the park that's owned by the town of Oregon. Parker is referring to Bicentennial Park, which is a long-established park in the town of Oregon and has some great trails that it would be nice if the county park could access. In any case, that's pretty far off. If you'd like to check out Anderson Park soon, there's actually a great opportunity this weekend. November 5th, the first Saturday in November from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., we have a community outreach event. We're inviting people to come out to the park. We light up the Arthur Schultz Memorial Forest hiking trails with um, tiki torches and illuminaries, and we have a large bonfire. We have wellness groups with different booths 
passing on information about wellness and good diets. And we also have some uh, free food and activities for the, uh, the kids. So it's really a fun event and gets people outside. So we're inviting everybody to stop on out and have some fun. Thanks to Roe Parker for talking with me today. If you'd like to know more about this Saturday's event, you can find information at the Friends website, andersonparkfriends.org. I'll also link the page directly in the digital version of this story, which you can listen to at wortfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, 70 and 71 are pretty good high temperatures for the first two days of November. Considering our normal high temperature this time of year should be around 52. We'd have gone higher today also, probably up to 75 or more, if we'd just had a few extra 100 feet of vertical mixing. But the low sun angle, uh, barely 32 degrees above the horizon now at noon. And a diurnal period closing in on a mere 10 hours tend to work against any uh, strong thermal stirring of the lower atmosphere. Winds remain fairly modest today as well, which didn't help, though they were up a bit over yesterday. And those winds will continue to rise uh, going through this overnight and through tomorrow as well as surface low pressure lifts northeastward out of North Dakota towards James Bay and ratchets up the gradient between it and the surface high that's sitting down over the Appalachians and east coast. That should produce uh, one more day of uh, 70 degree high temperatures tomorrow before incoming moisture begins to produce uh, clouds and precipitation ahead of an approaching cold front over the weekend. I previewed this coming weekend storm briefly and uh, somewhat speculatively on the Monday morning forecast since the model depictions at that point were quite divergent. Uh, But there has come to be pretty good unanimity now with the models uh, kicking their disagreements basically down the road another three or four days out into next week. I'll say more about that in a minute. Uh, If you want to have a look at the components of our weekend storm as they come together out to our west, you might have a look at the water vapor image of the U.S. with the pressure fields laid over on top. That's up at the top of the featured images on the WORT weather webpage. Not only can you see there the deep upper trough that has now come ashore off the Pacific and over California, but you can also see the downstream upper ridge over us carved out in the vapor elements, as well as the Uh, Closed surface low lifting out of North Dakota and the tightening pressure gradient. Those are in the isobars that are laid over top of that image uh, across the uh, eastern plains and upper Midwest. That's where that pressure gradient is. Anyway, that low is going to drag a southwestward running cold front into Minnesota by later tomorrow. While the leftward spinning energy that's still evident in the pit of the trough out to our west advances across the mountains and redeepens low pressure along the funnel boundary in about eastern Kansas, with that circulation then lifting northeastward towards roughly Dubuque early Saturday morning and then on towards Lake Superior Saturday night. 
The exact track of that surface low isn't fully settled yet, but the heaviest rains are fairly likely to come down in the area of elevated convergence uh, just to the northwest of the circulation, uh, which is apt to be, uh, I'm guessing from the preponderance of the models, somewhere in the western half of the listening area from about later Friday on through midday Saturday. A good inch or two of rain could come down uh, in some of the heavier rain areas during that time uh, after what will be more uh, showery precipitation during the day on Friday. One thing that has changed with the forecast since last Monday is that it again appears, as it had last week, that cold air advection is going to be quite limited behind the storm. With upper ridging following eastward quickly enough behind the cold front Sunday to take temperatures, I think, back towards 60 degrees or at least the upper 50s. And the ensuing week again has returned to the kind of warmer look that it had on the models last week. There'll be 60s this time around instead of 70s. Uh, and perhaps a late week storm next week that will finally introduce the uh, Arctic air that seems to be waiting for us on all the longer range models once you get out past 10 days or so. We'll have to see if it finally comes in next week. Uh, anyway, back to this evening. Uh, encroaching high clouds from Iowa, you might have seen the sun setting into those an hour or so ago. Those will begin to dim the stars from west to east uh, across the listening area over the next few hours. Uh, not thickening terribly much, but passing during the night. Uh, temperatures will drop to the low 50s on southerly winds, staying up at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Tomorrow, increasing southerly winds, which will come up to 10 to 17 miles per hour, with uh, some gustiness as well in the afternoon, will, I think, take temperatures back to 70, or at least near, despite passing high clouds, which will uh, thicken later on in the day and in the evening as well. A passing shower then becomes possible as the skies uh, deepen even further as we go overnight and towards uh, Friday morning, uh, especially to the west part of the listing area. Temperatures will hold around 60 on active south-to-southwest winds overnight. And Friday, scattered showers will begin to lift uh, northeastward across southern Wisconsin with uh, fairly minor daytime totals, I think, overall, and a good number of dry hours. Uh, temperatures will hold in the low 60s on southwesterly winds up at uh, 8 to 12 miles per hour. Rains will steady up then in the overnight with, uh, as I mentioned, perhaps an inch or more coming down in spots with temperatures dropping back into the mid-50s. And Saturday is quite likely to dawn wet with passing showers through midday, perhaps into the afternoon, eventually lifting north and uh, east of the area, however. Winds uh, are a kind of a tough call on Saturday, uh, with the track of the surface low being uncertain, but the winds should come up briskly from the southwest or west in any event later in the day as the storm moves north of us. Temperatures will hold in the upper 50s. I think we may clear some uh, through the overnight with temperatures dropping back into the mid-40s. And then we'll likely approach 60 degrees again on Sunday as southwesterly winds come up again, especially if we see a good bit of sun that day, which I think we will do. Uh, it is currently 62 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 41. Winds are out of the south at 12 miles per hour. Uh, still mostly clear, just a few passing cirrus overhead, and winds and uh, the barometer is at 30.10 inches of mercury and falling. It's now 6.51 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
As Badger voters make it to the polls to help determine control of the state and the U.S. Senate, Stu Levitan takes a look back at the results from back in the day on this week's episode of Madison in the 60s. Stu Levitan. Madison in the 60s. Elections. November 8, 1960. As the statewide chair of Senator John F. Kennedy's presidential campaign, Mayor Ivan Nestigan thought it would be a good idea for the city to conduct a door-to-door voter registration drive. It was, as a record turnout of 55,600, an astonishing 88% of registered voters, pushes Kennedy to a narrow win in the city and Dane County. The local turnout also helps Governor Gaylord Nelson become the first Democrat to win a second term since 1892, and only the fourth Democrat to win re-election as chief executive since 1848. Liberal U.S. Representative Robert W. Kastenmeier, Democrat of Watertown, is easily re-elected to a second term. Dane County also sets a record turnout of almost 92,000, as County Clerk Otto Feske and the seven other Democratic incumbents sweep the courthouse offices by nearly two to one. But it's a split decision in the three Madison Assembly races. Norman Anderson and Fred Risser take the eastern and central districts for the Democrats, while Robert Euling holds West Madison for the Republicans. Statewide voters prove themselves ticket splitters, re-electing Democrats Nelson and Attorney General John Reynolds while ousting the incumbent Democratic Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of State, turning the State Assembly from Democratic to Republican, and giving Richard Nixon the state's 12 electoral votes. 1962 brings another split decision. Nelson easily ends the career of U.S. Senator Alexander Wiley after 24 years, and Attorney General Reynolds ekes out a narrow victory to succeed him in the East Wing. But Reynolds can't celebrate too much. The rest of the Capitol is solidly Republican, as the GOP sweeps the four other constitutional offices and holds both houses of the legislature. Republican efforts to stymie Reynolds pay off in 1964, as Republican Lieutenant Governor Warren Knowles beats him handily, even as President Lyndon Johnson is cruising to victory statewide. Almost 61,000 of Madison's 71,000 registered voters make it to the polls, the highest turnout ever, and at 85.5%, just down from that 1960 figure. And yet another split decision. As the Democrats retake the Assembly, Madison Realtor and former Democratic Party Chair Pat Lucy wins his race for Lieutenant Governor, and Robert M. LaFalle's grandson, Bronson, unseats Attorney General George Thompson, becoming the first in his distinguished family to win office as a Democrat. President Johnson's off-year campaign season is disastrous for Badger Democrats in 1966, as Republicans notch big gains. Knowles is easily re-elected over Lucy, leading a near sweep that leaves La Follette the only Democrat in statewide office, and Republicans again holding both houses of the legislature. Republicans take seven of the state's ten seats in Congress and even crack Democratic control of Dane County, 
with Floyd McBurney's upset victory over incumbent District Attorney Michael Torfey. One thing stays the same. Madison voters handily approve another school bond issue, agreeing by about two to one to borrow $26.5 million. The bond issue will finance a five-year construction remodeling program, which includes 12 new elementary schools, four new junior high schools, and a new high school on the Far East Side, and six school additions. But there is one new wrinkle. Five anti-war protesters are arrested for campaigning too close to the polling place at the city-county building. Activists Leah Zeldin, who was one of the leading hecklers driving Senator Edward Kennedy from the Stock Pavilion stage during a Lucy campaign event in October, and Bortai Scudder, who was among those arrested during a demonstration at the Truex Air Base in 1965, are arrested along with three young men after they refused police orders to leave the Monona Avenue entrance to the building. Police also confiscate 15 signs and nearly 2,000 mimeographed leaflets urging a write-in vote for Mrs. Scudder as a peace candidate for Congress against incumbent Representative Kastemeyer, himself one of Washington's leading doves. The city off-year turnout dips to 45,000, or about 65% of registered voters, about 15% higher than the countywide total. Republicans end the electoral decade on a high note. Governor Knowles wins an easy re-election over Attorney General LaFollette, even carrying Dane County as he leads the GOP to a sweep of all five statewide constitutional offices. Republicans also lock up the local law and order offices. James C. Bowl, who had been appointed district attorney after the sudden death of Floyd McBurney, wins a full term, and former Democrat Vernon Jack Leslie is elected sheriff. Leslie changed parties in 1967 after the Dane County Democratic Party honored local Quaker Betty Boardman for bringing medical supplies to North Vietnam. Presidentially, the decade's last election reprises the first, as Republican Richard Nixon again takes the Badger State's 12 electoral votes, this time with about 48 percent of the tally. Democratic Vice President Hubert Humphrey finishes with a little over 44 percent, and segregationist Democratic Governor of Alabama George Wallace takes a little more than 7.5 percent. The only Democratic bright spot is Nelson's easy re-election to the U.S. Senate. And another new wrinkle, a massive coordinated effort by local Republicans to challenge the eligibility of younger voters in student wards, with at least one former university student being arrested when he tried to inform voters of the law about challenged ballots. An editor of the Daily Cardinal is also threatened with arrest by a Republican poll watcher at a downtown polling place as she talked to voters. City Attorney Edwin Conrad says Republicans were, quote, very definitely engaging in widespread challenges, but claims no student had been denied the right to vote, although several left their polling place rather than deal with the hassle. Eight Ward Alder and graduate student Paul Soglin says, quote, The harassment the students went through at the polls today is one more justification of why young people turn to the politics of the street. Radical attorney Melvin Greenberg calls the Republican effort, quote, wholesale harassment and intimidation of the students and says the FBI has been asked to investigate whether Republicans violated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, early voting, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to the local news at 6. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Sean Bull and Stu Levitan were our feature contributors. Chuck Kademan was our engineer. And thanks to Talia Van Sistine, who sat in on production duties this evening. Happy birthday, Nate. I'm Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>